Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by Recreation and Paths Manager for Nature Scott, Bridget Jones, for a broad discussion on public access. We touch on the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, the so-called Right to Roam, mediating conflicts when they occur, and how to recognise and promote responsible access. Hello, Bridget. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. Good, good stuff. Um, I don't know what the weather's doing with you um, in your office today. It's pretty dry here, but it's it's dry inside, so uh, we'll we'll crack on. Sounds good to me. Yeah, it's yeah, cloudy and overcast. Classic autumn weather. Bridget, we, uh, we've brought you on today to have a bit of a discussion around public access in Scotland. This is a topic that we haven't covered in Thrill of the Hill before and felt that it was obviously important. Farmers obviously make up the majority of land use in Scotland, but they're not the only stakeholders um, to be included in the discussion. So would you mind just giving the listeners a bit of an introduction as to who you are and why public access is an important topic to you? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Bridget Jones. I work for Nature Scott, um, part of what's called the People and Places Activity Team. And I focus very much on access and recreation um, and you know, how that um, operates across Scotland. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting role um, and um, a very important role, um, particularly in terms of um, how access rights operate across Scotland. Um, and as you say, both in terms of what the land manager's interest is, um, but also from a, a recreational interest in the and the public's use of the outdoors. Bridget, so can you just get us kicked off then? Can you give us a bit of an overview as to the legislative history around public access in Scotland? Yeah, sure. Um, the the main thing that most people will probably be aware of um, is the most most recent um, developments in access legislation. Um, having said um, most recent, um, it's well nearly 18 years now since um, the Land Reform Scotland Act 2003 um, established uh, a statutory framework for access rights in Scotland. Um, so um, the advent of that legislation gave a, a right of responsible access to most land and water in Scotland, um, largely for recreational purposes, educational activities, um, and enjoyment of the of the outdoors. Um, but um, those rights didn't kick off straight away. Um, the first thing to do once that legislation was passed by the Scottish Parliament, and the very early days of the Scottish Parliament, I should add, um, the Scottish Outdoor Access Code needed to be produced. And again, that went through a bit of consultation process. Now, that set out the, you know, what those responsibilities were in respect to, to exercising those access rights. And you'll hear me say responsibilities loads as we talk. So, I'll apologise now to anybody listening. I'll sound a bit like a broken record, but it's responsibilities, you know, access rights and responsible access rights is, is the key. But yeah, Scottish Outdoor Access Code, once that got approval um, in the Scottish Parliament, and that was in 2004, Five, um, the then access rights took effect, um, and things progressed from from there on. So that's the, that's the framework. 
What I will add to that is that um, there was other access um, provision in, in Scotland. So things like the rights of way network already established and a, a statutory framework around those in particular. And that those continued. So um, it was like over and above um, the provisions for, for rights of way. And in the preparation for this podcast, Bridget, speaking to one of your colleagues, we had a bit of a discussion about the fact that right to roam isn't really a term that's used anymore. It might, it might be something that listeners will commonly be familiar with, but um, is that correct? Yeah, it's not something that we, not a, a phrase that we use in a Scottish context at all, um, mainly because, as I said, it's about a, a right of access, but a responsible right of access. And we're really, really keen to um, ensure that that's, that's clear. So it's not just a, a straightforward, you've got a right, you can roam anywhere. You've got a right to take access in particular places, um, in a particular way, but in a way that is is responsible and respectful, um, and you know cares for the environment and respects other people's use and other activities such as land management activities. So, very much a right of responsible access, um, and yeah, we steer steer well well clear of of a right to roam. So, Bridget, how do we define responsible access then? And do you have any examples of maybe good access or instances where um, there's been been poor access? Yeah, that's um, it's a, it's a good question. Um, in terms of defining um, responsible access, I guess the first thing to um, to really illustrate is that there are responsibilities on on both parties in terms of um, exercising access rights. So the people that are out there walking, cycling, horse riding, paddle boarding, wild swimming, um, and those that are managing the land. So there's responsibilities as a land manager not to obstruct um, access rights um, to you accept them um, and manage around them. So don't be overly restrictive in your in your activities, but at the same time, recognizing that there are activities that are undertaken on the land that require some control of where people go um, and where they perhaps don't go during particular times. So I think that's, that's really important. There's responsibilities on both sides and those are detailed in the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, which is quite a lengthy document, um, it's a very useful document, um, which is on our on our website, on the uh, nature.scot website. Um, but I've got a copy of it here in front of me. And we are on, and I'll just do a wee double check, nothing like looking at it straight at the time, is 132 pages. I should say A5 pages, so not overly um, long and well presented. But there's a lot of detail in there. Um, and that will cover things from... You know, how you manage your forestry operations um, in the context of access rights, you know, what areas you can close off whilst you're harvesting um, and how you should provide signage to let the public know what's going on, when it's going on, um, provide alternative routes if you can, keep everything proportionate in terms of the area affected and the timescales of the activities as well. So there's things like that. Um, there's things around um, responsibilities in terms of controlling your dog if you're exercising your access rights with a with a dog and keeping that dog under close control or on a lead and in particular times like lambing time not going into lambing fields with a dog avoiding those using an alternative route taking heed of any signage that might be provided by a, a farmer about what's going on when and why so a whole range of different um, scenarios are covered within that um, within the code, 
And in addition to that, over the years, we've developed supplementary guidance for particular activities. So you'll find that um, horse riders, for example, or kayakers and paddlers have guidance very specific to their user group, to their audience, that shall help them undertake their access um, related activity in a, in a responsible way and understanding what else you know they might come across whilst they're paddling down a river in terms of fishermen or maybe um, on horseback on a shared a path that's shared with walkers and cyclists and people pushing buggies so lot, lots of different different scenarios um, and yeah lots of different circumstances but I'd say on the whole um, they're they're manageable. A lot of it's just common sense. Um, and I think you're making sure that you provide a good, attractive alternative option. If you are looking to divert the public around an activity, chances of success are high. If you provide nice, clear signage that people can understand and recognize is, is real, um, then you know your chances of success are high. If, however, you go for something that's something perhaps a bit too broad brush in terms of signage, where you maybe say something like, you know, the area ahead is closed for um, deer stalking or moving of livestock with no parameters around it. Um, if the public quickly realise that actually there isn't an activity going on, they'll then, they won't trust the signage and they won't use it and they might go past it. So it's really important to keep that kind of it real um, and you know, reflecting what's actually going on in the area. And that way, chances are the public will, in most cases, um, take note. Do you find that, by and large, Bridget, members of the general public are respectful of the countryside? And, and by and large, do you find that farmers are prepared to provide access? Yes. Um, I mean, on on the whole, yes, uh, is the answer to that. By far the majority of people taking access are quite happy to follow signs. Majority, I should say, prefer to keep to a path. Um, in most cases, if you provide a good path option, signposted, the majority of people would rather be somewhere that they feel welcome um, and, and safe to be. Um, so in the majority of cases, yes, there are always exceptions, of course. And in terms of land, land managers, again, yes, on the whole, um, access is is welcomed or at least tolerated and managed, um, but there are of course exceptions where where it's not. So the the two extremes would be um, there are circumstances where um, a landowner might put up a prohibitive sign or lock a gate or do something like that. It may well be as a result of something else that's going on. Not might not necessarily be directly associated with access rights, but might have the consequence of of restricting. And similarly, on the side of um, the recreational user, the person using uh, their access rights, you do get ir irresponsible behaviours. Things, to, you know, typical kind of example might be yeah, dog out of control, um, causing problems, um, or you know, leaving a gate open when it should be closed, causing livestock. Um, issues. So you, you get you get extremes on on both sides, but on the whole, um, I think it's fair to say that the, the majority, you know, abide by the you know the guidance that we give um, and the guidance that's given locally on the ground. 
And Bridget, where conflicts do occur with public access, what do they tend to be? I mean, is it is it dog worrying? Is it littering? Damage to the landscape? I mean, what, what are people doing? Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of different things. Um, there's things that are quite often associated, so associated with with people being in a place, so not necessarily directly to do with the taking of access rights themselves. So, yeah, as you say, you, you, you get litter issues, um, you know, congregations of people. I'd say the the ones that, that come to the fore every year, we have problems with um, with dogs not under control, causing problems with sheep worrying, um, particularly, you know, either just before lambing starts or, or during lambing time. Um, however, there's separate legislation to deal with that. So in some respects, it's it's in, you know, it, it's alongside access rights. So somebody might be using their access rights to, you know, walk along a path or get towards a, a field where there are lambs. Um, but the out of control dog is separate. You know, dog control legislation, um, you know, sheep worrying legislation. There's been a lot of work on that in recent years through the Scottish Parliament to try and improve um, the options for dealing with that. And it's very much a police matter or a local authority dog warden matter um, to deal with those. And if somebody is taking access and their dog isn't under control, they don't have an access right. You know, they are not within their access rights. So it, you're almost at the default setting that they're you know, they're committing some kind of offence under another piece of legislation. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's certainly one that comes up. We we do get problems with um, at particularly busy times of year, cumulative impacts um, resulting from perhaps, um, you know, a particular area being very popular with wild camping, for example. So as part of exercising your access rights, you can, you can recreationally camp lightweight, two or three nights maximum. Um, so you can get cumulative impacts associated with that, and that might um, involve environmental damage um, to ground from repeated pitching of tents. Um, so yeah, that's that can be an aspect. Um, another one, not, not, I say not as frequent as it probably used to be. We used to get occasionally conflicts with um, kayaking and fishing, but I'd say that we've not had those for a long time. I think a lot of work was done to improve awareness both for for people fishing and for people paddling um, and rafting. Um, so those, you know, a lot of that early kind of misunderstandings has been been ironed out as people get um, you know better informed on how to avoid causing a conflict and you know, how to avoid where the, the fishing activity is going on and so on. So yeah, there's there's odds and sods. And in, in terms of public access, I imagine it must be a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, Scotland has some terrific landscapes. Um, we very much want people to come out into the countryside and enjoy them. But the more people that are entering sites, whether they're national parks or areas of outstanding natural beauty, um, you know, that there is going to be that bit of conflict there, that, that tension that you know, numbers need maintained, um, pathworks need maintained, provision of services. Um, that there is going to be that issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's as you say, it is a bit double edged. Um, and the key is to is to provide you know a wider range of opportunities and places for for people to go. So, um, particularly at the moment, I think with a, a reliance on 
on social media type content for spreading information about where people might want to go. Um, you do get these sort of honeypot sites and locations where you can get quite an influx of, of people um, in one area that then results in your know, path erosion um, and you know, other associated impacts. Um, whereas if we can sort of spread the load a bit more, um, there are places in Scotland, some fantastic places in Scotland that are a bit quieter that do have a bit more capacity to take um, more visits to the to the outdoors. But I'm saying that very carefully um, because in the same way, you don't want to, you know, suddenly fire everybody through to a place that isn't able to cope with it. So uh, it's a lot of the associated infrastructure, as you say, the services that, that go along with that, um, and that would be around at the moment, a heavy reliance on on car parking um, capacity, um, but equally, you know, looking to the future, other ways of getting to places, um, you know, better utilisation of, of public transport options and active travel options to 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 get people to to where they want to go, but at the same time reducing the impacts of that. Uh, and then, in addition, we've got you know we're, we're you know we've got a lot of visitors coming from from overseas and um, further afield coming to visit Scotland. So yeah, that adds a bit of can add a bit of pressure um, in certain locations. So in investment in you know good path provision, good signage, um, a good welcome for for visitors so that they can enjoy Scotland responsibly. And as I said earlier on, the majority of people would much rather park where they're welcome to park and follow the signs and follow a path, take in the views, take their photographs, post their social media, then move on to the, the next place. Just on that, Bridget, do you, in your role with Nature Scott, do you get much of an opportunity to head out and see these sites? I, well, I would say that the majority of of my my sightseeing is done in, in my own time. I think I I do a bus person's um, holiday most years, so I do I do get out and about and see a lot of it. But um, on on a work based um, side of things, yeah, I mean I I get out and about a bit. But one of the things that we do really well, um, and particularly since. Um, COVID and the kind of post-COVID era where we had a you know, big influx of visitors into the countryside, we pulled together um, representatives from across Scotland into a you know, group where we could share experience of what was happening, where, you know, what was happening with the pressures in what we were calling hotspot areas um, and got that intelligence from those that were actively managing it, whether that was in the national parks or with Forestry Land Scotland or the local authorities or even your know, local communities that are trying to tackle things at a very local level. Um, and that's where we get, as I said, a lot of our information about what the issues are, the extent of the issues. And then we start working together on, well, how do we tackle those? Let's, let's share our experiences um, and um you help address those. I have to say that um, certainly over the last three years or so, um, that sharing um, of experience has helped hugely in um, in tackling you know some of the issues out there and giving support to to those that are in the, the front line. So whether that is a you know somebody actually managing the land, or whether that's a community volunteer, or whether it's an employed seasonal ranger or warden staff. And um, involved in those discussions are representatives from Scottish Land and Estates and National Farmers Union in there as well. So we're 
we were looking at it from from all angles. Um, but yeah, it does. It keeps you keeps your feet on the ground, so as to say. Well, the the reason I ask is I, I was just curious as to whether or not there is a kind of hidden gem out there that you think number one has the capacity for more people to go and see it we want them to do it sustainably but is there is there something out there that maybe we could highlight on the podcast as being particularly good that you would encourage people to go and see yeah in in terms of do you mean in terms of good good management and good practice yes yeah and and just just a nice landscape or a nice variety of activities as well yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I'll probably cover a couple of things on this. Um, perhaps more just to sort of illustrate um, the differences in Scotland and and how things are kind of managed. So we've got got places like the two national parks, so Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, and Cairngorms National Park. Um, so they obviously are focusing on you know, there's a conservation element to their work, but there's a visitor management element to their work. Um, so both national parks um, provide you know, a good um, quality welcome for visitors, good infrastructure, good information about where to go, when it's busy, when not to go, you know, when the car parks are at capacity, when you might try you know, move to somewhere else within the park. So both, both the national parks, um, good place to look at. Forestry Land Scotland as well. They've got a network of sites across Scotland. Uh, and similarly, you know, their focus is largely on um, obviously forestry management, but they've got a recreational element to their, their work as well um, and provide a good network of sites and information associated with those. Um, so those, you know, those, those agencies are particularly good. But when we get to some of the quieter areas in, in Scotland, so we've got areas like Ar Argyll and Butte, for example, um, a bit quieter, uh, tends to get, I won't say bypassed, well, I will say bypassed, but, you know, folk generally head, they're heading for Sky, they're heading for Glencoe, they're going for the, you know, the usual locations that everybody's heard about. Um, but we've actually got some really fantastic scenery um, to the west. Southwest Scotland's another one, um, down in Dumfries and Galloway, um, beautiful beaches, lovely rolling countryside, fantastic um, recreational opportunities in the forests there, um, but again, can get, get missed out. So there's some really good good locations that are a bit quieter. Aberdeenshire is another one, you know, again, fantastic coastal areas, absolutely stunning um, scenery, great wildlife um, on, the, on the sea cliffs and so on can be a wee bit quieter so yeah we've got we've got a lot we've got a great set of opportunities in scotland um and you know if it doesn't take much you look a wee bit and you can can find some some hidden gems in there but i won't give you any specifics because i'll just create a, another hot spot somewhere unintentionally fair enough no problem you maybe feel like you've just answered this question but but where in scotland do you feel that people are heading out to are are the answers different um yeah, it's yeah, it's quite a, it's a it's an interesting picture across Scotland because what you've got is that um, we get our visit our day visits if you like so the ones that are coming from um, our residential population which of course is largely in the central belt of Scotland so if you think about um, folk looking to to the weekend and seeing the weather forecast and thinking yep there's there's an opportunity to go on a on a day trip. They're generally not traveling that far. So they'll maybe go an hour, an hour's drive, hour and a half's drive. Ideally, if we can get them on a train or a bus, that'd be even, even better. But so they're you know, they're focusing on things just a bit closer 
to home. Um, so we get an influx perhaps to, well, to Loch Lomond, um, water, and I'll add in at this point, particularly during the sunny periods of weather or warm periods of weather, um, big attractions. So coastal areas, Loch Lomond and so on. We've then got um, ones perhaps a little bit more immediate to the, to the cities like Pentland, Pentland Hills Regional Park. You're really, really popular for the, the community of Edinburgh, um, heading straight out, getting to the hills there. And there's, there's water bodies there as well. So it's, it's a bit of a hot spot. East Lothian beaches as well to the east of Edinburgh. Some you know, stunning locations along there. Again, very, very popular. But when you're looking at things further afield, like uh, referred to already, like Glencoe, Sky, I'll say North Coast 500, so North Northwest Highlands, the islands as well. So some of our most stunning locations, but those will tend to be form part of a you know, multi-day trip. So pre-planned generally, um, so maybe going for a weekend, long weekend, a week, and the visitors there can come from all over. So it could be domestic, Scottish-based tourists or people from south of the border, or people from further afield. And again, looking for a mixture of opportunities from, you know, some looking for a camping, camper van, some looking for B&B and, and hotel type accommodation. But all of them looking to enjoy our, our fantastic scenery and landscape and wildlife um, as part of their part of their trip. Um, and in doing that, they get the opportunity to exercise their their access rights um, and take a you know a stunning walk along a, a coastal coastal area, beach, Achmelvich, up to Darness, wherever. And uh, you mentioned walking there, Bridget. What do people do when they're out in the countryside predominantly? What kind of activities are they undertaking? Yeah, it's um, another good question. I mean, most folk will go for a short walk. That's the most popular. Um, and arriving at a destination, short walk, um, taking some views, and then they go for a nice coffee and a cake and, uh, and you know, the usual format. But um, we've got something for everybody. Uh, it's you know, such a broad range of opportunities. I'd, I'd say that you know, just for interest, I, over the last few years, we've seen a, a significant change in water-based access um, recreation. So wild swimming and stand-up paddleboarding. Um, they've just gone, it's just rocketed in terms of the, the number of people undertaking that activity. Um, you know, significant numbers and you're really getting out and, and enjoying themselves. So I'd say stand-up paddleboarding particularly um, popular at the moment, but then all, all the, the usual ones, so um, cycling, horse riding, um, but also paddling, kayaking, um, backcountry skiing falls within access rights as well. Um, and um, I was going to say something else there, but it's gone right out of my head. But yeah, you know, we've got a whole... A whole array of, of opportunities for, for people to enjoy both land and water. Um, and as I've said, right at the start, I'll take you right back to it um, in a responsible way. So that's that's very much the, the trick. Do you know, it's interesting that you, you said going right back to the start there, because I, I was going to backtrack a little to, to a farmer point here. If some of our farmer listeners are thinking you know, what can I do to improve public access on my farm? You know, I've got a nice feature here. You're maybe somewhere in Scotland where there's a standing stone or there's a water feature or, you know, it could be a whole collection of things. 
where would you encourage them to go for advice on what they should do? Yeah, that's another good question. Yeah, there's quite a bit of advice out there. Um, I mean, if they're a member of Scottish Land and Estates or National Farmers Union, they'll find um, guidance within those within those organisations. Uh, again, you can look on our Nature Scott website. You'll get a bit of advice in there. But the, I think the main thing I would say that is, if you're looking to encourage access to somewhere where you've not had significant numbers before, think about it carefully about who your audience might be, how they arrive, how you want to manoeuvre them around um, the location that you're looking to encourage um, and look at it a slightly bigger picture than perhaps your own patch of land. Um, because it's one of the things we're trying to encourage through our visitor management work is that you know, look a bit broader than just your immediate because you know, there might be something that you can utilize nearby that might work better for you in terms of parking provision um, or, you know, where you're guiding people to. you got to think that, you know, most people like to go for a short walk, preferably circular, and most will stick to paths uh, and follow signage. So if, you know, if you, if you do that, you'll, you'll, you'll do well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other the other options are if you're in a national park, take advi advice from um, your national park authority. They'll have access, outdoor access offices there. And similarly, if you're in a local authority area, you'll have an access, hopefully an access officer um, or somebody responsible for access within your local authority that will guide you. If you're doing any kind of development, you have to think about the planning side of things, of course. So, um, you know, constructing new paths and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, more often than not, will result in some form of planning application. So, um, a bit of discussion with with the authorities just to make sure you're you're you know following the the rules properly. Um, but I think the the main thing I would say to folk is that um, your best if you've got people on your land or looking to um, you know get to somewhere that is a, a destination, you know, like a standing stone or a, you know a popular. Um, bit of water's edge, your know, beach or whatever, um, you're best to try and provide for them. And if you provide something that they will use, so don't give them a massive big loop round to get to the beach because they will take the most direct option. Um, so if you do that, give them something that they'll use. They'll Chances are the majority will stick to that. You'll know where they are and they'll feel comfortable where they're at. And you can sort of continue on with your your other activities on your on your land uh, with relative peace of mind, I would hope. And Bridget, so just when conflicts do occur between farmers and members of the general public, it can be quite emotive on on both sides, um, and and things can get hit up quite quickly. And um, what advice would you give to farmers who are managing conflicts at the at the local level? Yeah, I mean, the first thing would be um, would be safety first. So, you know, if you are finding yourself in a conflict situation, um, step back from it. You know, if it's starting to get to a point where you're not not feeling comfortable, and we give that advice to you know our our rangers that we we fund, um, access officers get similar sort of advice, and we'd give the same for um, for those on the you know, quite often right in the midst of it as a, as a landowner or a land manager is, yeah, don't, don't get yourselves into a, a, an unsafe situation. But if you, if you are in, you're trying to deal with it, you are trying to tackle it. Yeah. Just, just keep it at a good level. Um, don't try and, um, 
I was going to say, you know, there's there's a lot of skill in that conflict resolution and negotiation and mitigating, you know, the mitigating circumstances that surround it and trying to get something that's, that's, you know, a conversation that's held at a, at a level, a nice adult, adult to adult conversation. But as soon as it starts to escalate out, if you start getting into people trying to trump to the next person and if it starts to get aggressive, then you know, you've got to try and scale it back down again. Um, but I think, you know, if you can talk reason, um, if you can explain calmly, um, try and, um, you know, provide the explanation around that, do you realize that, you know, in doing this, it has an impact on what I'm trying to do? Um, you know, if you could do this, you know, do it a different way, or there's another place similar to this over there that might be better, that kind of stuff. But it's, it is quite tricky. It's tricky for the rangers that have to deal with it. It's tricky for the police that have to deal with it. And it's certainly tricky for a, for a landowner, especially if it's something that's, you know, if impacting on their livelihood. Um, it's It can be very, very, very tricky. And Bridget, you've mentioned a couple of organisations throughout the podcast, but I just wanted to get your opinion here. Is is there any individual or any organisation that you would shout out as being a particularly good example of provision of public access um, or they've uh, built a good relationship with the general public? Yeah, I mean, the, I've, I've mentioned the two national parks already um, and, you know, they are they are really really good examples. Uh, I would really emphasize the important role of the access authority, um, the local authority, because you know, they've been working on, on access for, for years and years. They've probably come across most situations. There's a really good network out there of access professionals that share information um, in terms of learning and experience. Um, so even if the, you know, the person you speak to might not necessarily have the answer for you, they've got a good support network out there that can can help with advice um so i mean that would be my my main one the other other ones would be um most access authority areas will have a local access forum and the local access forum's role is to help advise and guide in terms of situation where there's perhaps some some conflict or an issue to to resolve both from a land management perspective or a recreational um access perspective. So if there's a local access forum, they'll have repre balanced representation from recreational interest and land management interest. So you, you know that if you're going there that um, you've, you, you'll get a good um, balanced view. So yeah, the local access forums um, and yeah, we do have a national access forum, but that's that's really sort of a higher, higher level, if you like, more national issues that are kind of across the country. Um, but they keep um, well in touch with what's happening at a local level through the local access forum. So they, they would be the ones I would I would say if, if you're managing access and you've got issues, you know, check them out in your local area. Check our website out, Scottish Outdoor Access Code, and you'll find various bits of guidance, land management organisations as well. And um, there's loads of good practice out there, loads. And uh, we'll have a number of relevant links in the show notes to this podcast. Bridget, can I just thank you very much for coming on the podcast this afternoon? Um, I wonder, is there any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think um, my, my closing thought would be that the majority of people take their access to the countryside in a responsible way, in an enjoyable way. And I think it's it's remembering that 
you know, most folk are, are out there to enjoy the countryside, um, have a, you know, have a great experience. And similarly, the, the majority of land managers out there um, accommodate and welcome access. And I think if you've got both those things happening, it's all to the good. Um, and I think that's that's the way forward. Um, it's embrace it, manage it. The majority are really appreciative of the opportunities they get. We've got a fantastic country, awesome wildlife, awesome landscape. Um, and, you know, if we can encourage more people to enjoy it, particularly those that, that maybe don't get the opportunity to enjoy it, perhaps those closer to urban areas or in um, who have less opportunities, um, then that's all to the good. Um, because the benefits of good outdoor access, um, both in terms of people's health and well-being, um, but also the contributions it can make to, to local economy and communities are, are tremendous. So, I'd, yeah, just give it a, a big shout out to um, the benefits. And, uh, yeah, that's me. And Bridget, how do people best get in touch with yourself or Nature Scott? Yeah, we're, um, we've got... Uh, direct contact details on our website, which is nature.scot. And we've also got our outdoor access-scotland.scot website. On there, there's a list of contact details, not just for us, um, but also for all the access authority contacts as well, and all the representatives on the various NGOs. So people like Ramblers Scotland, um, Mountaineering Scotland, um, and Scottish Land and Estates NFU. So all the, all the contact details are there on a web page. Brilliant. Well, Bridget Jones, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.